watch for the eyes. The beautiful Manchester? No way. The Jodcast. The darkness is coming. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Ian Morrison, Nick Rattenbury, and Roy Smith. The Jodcast. July 2008 issue. Hello and welcome to the July issue of the Jodcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Nick. Hello. Hello there, Dave. And unfortunately we don't have Stuart because he's off jet-setting once again around the world. But never mind, in his place we still have the usual features. We have our interview with Jochen Vella from UCL about dark energy... We have What's Happening in the July Night Sky with Ian Morrison. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, the glassed gamma ray satellite reaches orbit, super-Earths may be more common than thought, and early genetic material found in a meteorite. The latest and most sophisticated gamma ray observatory, the glassed satellite, was launched on board a Delta II rocket from Cape Canaveral in the USA on June 11th. Although a NASA mission, parts of the instruments were built by institutes in France, Italy, Germany, Sweden and Japan. Two days after the successful launch, the telescope's two solar panels were deployed and rotated towards the Sun in order to provide the spacecraft with power. GLAST, or the Gamma Ray Large Area Space Telescope, has two main instruments, the LAT, or Large Area Telescope, and the GBM, or GLAST Burst Monitor, as well as smaller instruments used for alignment and tracking. Gamma rays are generated in very high-energy events throughout the universe, and observing them can help us to understand these phenomena. Some of the things the science team behind the GLAST mission hope to use the telescope to study are supermassive black holes, neutron stars, gamma ray bursts and cosmic rays, as well as dark matter and the early universe. This mission follows up on work done by gamma-ray instruments on board previous satellites, such as the Compton Gamma-ray Observatory, but GLAST is far more sensitive and is the first gamma-ray observatory capable of surveying the entire sky in less than a day. Gamma-rays are hard to study from the surface of the Earth because they are unable to penetrate through our atmosphere, so gamma-ray telescopes must be sent into orbit. The Large Area Telescope will be capable of surveying the entire sky every three hours. The instrument itself weighs three tonnes, with almost a million channels of electronics, but uses less power than an ordinary hairdryer. All the instruments and support systems are currently undergoing post-launch testing, with the first light results expected around 90 days after launch, and, as often happens with satellites, the mission will be renamed once operations begin. Since a planet was first discovered around another star in 1995, More than 270 exoplanets have now been discovered. 
Most of these have been large planets, probably gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn, in orbits very close to their parent stars, as these are the easiest planets to discover. Now, a team of astronomers using ESO's 3.6-metre telescope at La Silla in Chile have found a triple system of smaller, so-called super-Earths, around a star known as HD 40307. The smallest of these planets is only 4.2 times the mass of the Earth, and orbits its parent star in just 4.3 days. The group studied a large sample of stars using the HARPS instrument, a precision spectrograph capable of detecting the tiny perturbations in a star's motion caused by the motion of small planets in its orbit. HARPS is capable of detecting motions of as little as a few metres per second in a particular star. Another outcome of the observations, submitted to the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics, is that many more stars may have planets than had previously been thought. The astronomers discovered a total of 45 candidate planets, with masses below 30 Earths, and orbital periods shorter than 50 days. From their observations, they estimate that maybe one star in three supports planets like these. Since planets close to their parent stars in short orbits are easier to find than those with longer periods, further away from their star, it is probable that there may be many other planets present, says Stefan Udry of Geneva Observatory in Switzerland, one of the astronomers who carried out the study. For the first time, researchers have confirmed the extraterrestrial origin of a sample of material from a meteorite containing nuclear bases, molecules which are the precursors to the molecules which make up DNA and RNA, the building blocks of all known life. The findings, published in the June 15th issue of the journal Earth and Planetary Science Letters, suggest that the raw materials to make the first DNA could have come from space. The team, led by Zeta Martins from Imperial College London, discovered molecules including uracil and xanthine in fragments of a rock known as the Murchison meteorite, which crashed to Earth in 1969. They tested the nuclear bases found in the fragment for particular isotopes of carbon and found that they contained a heavy form of carbon which could only have been formed in space. Similar materials formed on Earth contain a lighter isotope of carbon. In the early stages of the solar system, the young Earth was bombarded by large numbers of meteorites. Dr. Martin says that early life may have adopted nuclear bases from these meteoritic fragments. Co-author Mark Sefton adds that because meteorites represent leftover materials from the formation of the solar system, the key components for life could be widespread in the cosmos. Our project, Searching for Evidence of Gravitational Waves, has revealed new information about the most famous neutron star in the sky, the Crab Pulsar. Sitting in the middle of the Crab Nebula, the pulsar was created in a supernova explosion seen from Earth in AD 1054. The rapidly spinning neutron star, left over in the heart of the nebula, spins more than 30 times a second, sweeping a narrow beam of radio waves past the Earth each time it spins. The rotation rate of all pulsars decreases over time, but the crab pulsar is unusual. Its rotation rate is decreasing rapidly relative to most pulsars, says Graham Wone of the University of Glasgow, who led the study. This implies that the pulsar is radiating energy at a huge rate. The mechanisms suggested for radiating this energy away and causing the pulsar's rotation rate to slow include asymmetric particle emission, magnetic dipole radiation, and the emission of gravitational waves. The team used LIGO, or the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, together with observations of the crab pulsar's rotation rate from Jodrell Bank Observatory, 
to look for evidence of gravitational waves coming from the Crab Pulsar. The analysis of the data shows that no more than 4% of the energy loss can be accounted for by the emission of gravitational waves. Although this result showed no actual detection of gravitational waves, it still provides information about the pulsar and its structure. A perfectly spherical neutron star will not emit gravitational waves at all, but because the Crab pulsar is relatively young, it was thought that it would be less symmetrical than most pulsars, and therefore a good candidate for observations with LIGO. The researchers say that the lack of gravitational waves detected from the Crab pulsar implies that any irregularities in its surface when it formed have now been smoothed out, making it very nearly spherical. And finally, almost two years after astronomers at the International Astronomical Union's General Assembly voted to demote Pluto from the class of a planet, a committee has finally named a new class of dwarf planet of which Pluto is now a member. It was announced on the 11th of June that the new name, proposed by the IAU Committee on Small Body Nomenclature and accepted by the Working Group for Planetary System Nomenclature, had been approved by the IAU Executive Committee at a recent meeting in Norway. The new class is named the Plutoids, and they are defined as bodies in orbit around the Sun with a semi-major axis greater than that of Neptune, that have sufficient mass for the self-gravity to overcome rigid body forces, so that they assume a hydrostatic equilibrium shape, and have not cleared the neighbourhood around their orbit. In short, this means objects about the size of Pluto, which are further away from the Sun than Neptune, and near spherical in shape. The two named Plutoids so far are Pluto and Eris. The asteroid Ceres, although of the correct size, is not a Plutoid, because it is located between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, much closer to the Sun than Neptune. Thanks, Megan. And now we're going to move on straight to our monthly feedback. So, Nick, what you got? Yes, so many thanks to folks who have sent in their feedback via the website. Many thanks to John Randall, who writes that it's been fascinating to discover a podcast which explains astronomical phenomena in more detail than you would find in the usual media. Many thanks for your feedback, and yes, that's indeed what we attempt to do with the Jodcast. We go a little bit deeper than perhaps you would expect to find on normal media, so thanks very much for that feedback. Many thanks also to Kim Rowe, who is a new listener, and he writes that he's very happy to uh, listen to the Jodcast. He enjoys the show. He's got a new uh, MP3 player, and he's been an amateur astronomer for 47 years. And so he's very pleased to be listening to the Jodcast. So many thanks for uh, your feedback. And everybody else, do please send in your feedback via the website, www.jodcast.net. We love to hear your feedback. We really enjoy hearing how you listen to the Jodcast and what you like about it and how you think we can improve the Jodcast. Dave? Well, we do actually have a lot of uh, similar feedback on Facebook. Uh, we now have 180 members in our Facebook group. And one of those is Greg Dixon, who says, Hello, the Jods. Love the podcast. Beats me why you've not been snapped up by the BBC to educate the masses. Is anyone listening from the BBC? My phone <laughs> number is... <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's hoping. Uh, Mark Weaver from Nottingham says, I've only just recently found the Jodcast and I'm already hooked and look forward to the next edition. As an ex-astronomer, uh, his career took him into archives and records management, I'm gradually catching up on developments over the past 20 years or so, which is quite a bit. My work takes me past Jodrell Bank a few times each month and it's fun to be listening to the Jodcast while driving by Jod itself. Keep up the good work. 
Uh, we've also had feedback from Daniel Stockton of Liverpool saying, Go on, give me a second mention, but the Jodcast really needs a forum. So, uh, if you have any ideas for where we can have such a forum, please let us know. And, and if, the, if anyone wants to create a Facebook fan page or anything like that, please do. A couple more wall posts. Matthew Harris says, I be loving the Jod Pod, keeps me sane in NYC. What about that, Nick? The Jod Pod. The Jod Pod. I like it. That's fantastic. We've got a genuine listener from NYC, the Big Apple. So hello to all our listeners in the city that never sleeps. Sounds yeah. ideal for uh, 24-hour astronomy. <laughs> uh, and Jason Evans from the West Midlands says, The Jod on my pod is out there with the brightest, and it doesn't take thousands of years to arrive. So, some stellar feedback there. It sounds like we've got quite a uh, poetic listenership. Uh, we're getting some nice sort of turns of phrases coming with the, uh, the, the feedback here. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, we need to get some people writing scripts for the intro outro. Save the, uh, <laughs> save the poor, poor person here from doing it all. <laughs> That's one idea. And also, perhaps if somebody wishes to write some poetry involving the Jodcast, we'd be more than happy to read the poems <laughs> out on the next edition of the Jodcast. Keep it clean and uh, keep it kind of astronomy-related, and yeah, go on, why not? Write us a poem. Well, uh, I'm just going to open up a couple of other things from Facebook, because we do actually have uh, topics where people can post questions and then chat about uh, some of the things that have been on, uh, that are on their minds. And Daniel Stockston again, here he is popping up everywhere, uh, says, SETI, is it worth it? And there is a, a one post already, one reply to that about, uh, yes, SETI is, of course, worth it. And uh, a long email there from Mark George Jacobs, who, uh, who has defended SETI's position. And that is, that is on the topic wall on Facebook. There are other such topics on there, uh, and one of them is all about the intro music. Now, do you remember, Nick, that we had a, a discussion about the intro music and whether it should be changed quite a bit ago? Yep, rem I remember that. And Christoph Bogart, I'm sorry, I probably have terribly mispronounced your name, but for, uh, Christoph from Belgium says, I wouldn't change the intro music, it's part of the Jodcast. To which Mike Gorman replied, Personally, I like the quirkiness and unpretentiousness of that silly bit of music. However, I'm a professional musician and will happily send you a few other alternatives once I get the chance to get in my studio over the next couple of months or so. Interested? And he says, for free, by the way. Ah, uh, yes, absolutely interested, then. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, if you have music, uh, even to add to the poetry, if you have a Jod song, uh, we've had one of those already before, um, but if you have another song or music or poetry, whatever you have, Please do send it in. We love to hear from you all. If you have any audio content that you wish to share as well, astronomy-related, perhaps what you did um, on a observing session, perhaps you were doing something with uh, school kids, astronomy-related, anything like that which you wish to share, astronomy-related, then do please contact us as well, and we might well put whatever product you have on the air, so to speak. Yes. Now, something that you probably won't be able to observe when you're out in a session, especially if it's the summer and if you're in a place like London where there is terrible light pollution, is the darkness, especially things like dark matter. Uh, and so, Nick, you actually went to one of the experts to find out more about dark energy, didn't you? Yes, indeed. I spoke with uh, Jochen Veller from University College of London about his work with the Dark Energy Survey, 
about dark energy. So I'm joined now by Dr. Jochen Veller from University College London. You're a lecturer at University College London, yes? Yes, that's correct. Hello. Now, your research interest is in this mysterious dark energy. That's correct, yes. So, Tell uh, us a little bit about this dark um, energy. I got interested in that probably almost 10 years ago. That was sort of the first indication we had of that. And probably some of you have heard already that um, the universe is expanding. But about 10 years ago, it was found that the expansion is actually speeding up, so it gets faster and faster. And that was discovered by looking at imploding stars, so-called supernovae in the universe. And the advantage of these imploding stars are, or exploding stars are that you can see them to very large distances. And that allows astrophysicists to measure distances and also by looking at the light uh, of their host galaxies where these stars live, uh, we can measure how fast they recede from us, and that allows us to draw a so-called Hubble diagram, which is mainly distance versus receding velocity. From these diagrams, we found that in the past, stuff was receding slower away from us, meaning today we are expanding actually faster than we would expect uh, by the theories we had at that time. And so what I'm working on is sort of trying to think about models, how to describe that, but mainly think about ways how we can test these models with current and future observations. So I'm a bit on the interface between a theoretical physicist and an observer. We've heard from other folk, including um, Professor Brian Schmidt from ANU, about the, the work on discovering that the universe is expanding faster and faster, this, mm-hmm. this cosmic acceleration, and also using the supernovae as, as, as distance indicators. And he also mentioned that the, the theorists have been rather fruitful in coming up with lots of different ideas on you know, what could right. be causing this increasing expansion. But he also mentioned, and others have also mentioned, that it's very difficult to choose between competing theories. So how can you, how do you work around that? How do you try and figure out how to test a theory? Okay, so, so let me... Just first, our, uh, mention our, let's say, at least from an observer's point of view, the most favorite theory is, a, is called a cosmological constant. And that was, interestingly enough, uh, a quantity Einstein introduced uh, when he set up a theory of general relativity, which t- describes gravity on very large scales in the universe. And at the time Einstein wrote down his equations, he firmly believed the universe should be static and it should not expand. Now, at his first instance, he saw, oh, God, my equations give me either that the universe is expanding or collapsing, depending on the amount of material matter in the universe. And then he realized, oh, there is a more general mathematical formulation. I can put in this tiny constant, balance all the forces out, and the universe was static. And But then Hubble came along and found out the universe is expanding, and Einstein is cited as uh, he, he said, basically, that introducing this cosmological constant was one of the greatest blunders he did in in his research. But what this cosmological constant actually does for us today is that if it doesn't exactly compensate the matter, it can lead to accelerated expansion. Mm. Now, the problem theorists have with that, if we introduce this cosmological constant, by the name, it has the same value today as it has at the beginning of the universe. And physicists like to work with natural units. And if we think about what describes the initial conditions of the universe and look what the natural energy scales would be, this cosmological constant is 120 orders of magnitudes too small. That means a zero point zero, 120 zeros till the first digit comes. And that 
is far smaller than we can ever hope to explain. Mm. And that's when theorists branched out and looked for other models, how to describe accelerated expansion. One theory is called, uh, is using what we learned about the initial conditions of the universe is, uh, is taking ideas from uh, so-called inflation models. And what it uses is that the vacuum in the universe actually has an energy. This sounds very abstract, but if you postulate that, that can lead to accelerated expansion today. What observers look for in that context, these models, the way the universe expands is slightly different from the way the universe would expand if there's a cosmological constant, and these are signatures we are looking for. And what are these signatures exactly? I mentioned before um, the redshift distance uh, diagram, redshift meaning the receding velocity, and that is basically, if you plot that, sort of the distance versus this receding velocity, these are slightly different curves if there are different models of this stuff in the universe, which leads to accelerated expansion. And we call this stuff dark energy, partly just to hide our embarrassment that we don't really know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so we had this problem with dark matter back, you know, the, in the early 90s. We knew that there That's was right. a whole, a large component of, of galaxies that we could not see. We tried looking for it. We haven't right. found it just yet, so we called it dark, and we went, oh, here's a bigger problem, dark energy. <laughs> dark matter is actually, in that context, a similar problem, but I think it's a much better post-problems because we know uh, our particle physicist friends tell us there are some lots of fundamental particle physics theories which have a lot of matter particle which haven't been discovered yet mm. uh, by direct observation. So there are a lot of candidates. With dark energy, the story is completely different. We basically have no clue at the moment. And all these models are more or less made up ad hoc just to fit the data we have from observing the expansion of the universe. Now, I should say in this context, what are the possibilities which could explain accelerated expansion, albeit uh, that's the only thing we have observed so far? There could be two other possibilities. So far, we only have talked there's some extra material in the universe which is repelling on very vast distances. But there are two other possibilities which are a bit more controversial. One is that the universe is inhomogeneous, and we happen to live in a bubble which expands accelerated, but on global scales, there's no accelerated expansion. If so we we're living in a, in a special yeah. part of, of, no, of the universe. That's right. But nobody so far has come up with a compelling theory why we live in this special conditions. Mm. And the third possibility is there's something wrong with Einstein equations on these large scales, and you have to modify it. Now, you have to be very careful when you do that, because... Einstein's equations of general relativity have been tested really accurate within the solar system. So if you mess around with them, you better make sure you don't destroy things you have established already. But from theoretical grounds, these are the only three possibilities what could happen to explain that data. And they all have their positives and negative sides to them. Now, the big question for somebody like me is how can we think about experiments to distinguish between these different approaches? And you mentioned that uh, one distinction you could make, the different models that you're comparing have different curves, let's say, or different predictions on the redshift uh, like of How big are these differences? That depends on various classes of models, but we, in percentage, they could be up to 50%. Now, the data currently gets good enough that these models are almost ruled out by current data, so we, we are not too keen in looking into these models anymore. But then there's a whole class of models, which, for instance, uh, these dark energy models, which 
behave entirely like a cosmological constant. So from that point of view, there would be never hope to distinguish it with that type of observations. But there's another type of observation I haven't really talked about yet. It's sort of an emerging probe. Astrophysicists call it weak lensing. And let me just briefly explain what that does. If we observe the light from a distant galaxy, the path of the light is actually bent by the intervening dark matter structure. Now, what happens is, like with a lens, if, if the galaxy has sort of an intrinsic shape, this shape is actually distorted by this lensing mm -hmm. of the light by the intervening dark matter structure. And we can apply some sophisticated statistics by looking at millions of galaxies to find out how much mass in dark matter is there between us and, and these galaxies. You point out that there's that weak lensing is different in its result to strong gravitational lensing. I'm sure some people will have seen yes. images from Hubble where you've right. got a background galaxy stretched out into yes. these very strong right. stretched out images. Here you're talking about a, a relatively small effect. That's correct, yes. So uh, you wouldn't be able to use a single galaxy to measure the signal. As I said before, you have to average over millions of galaxies and then apply some sophisticated statistics, which is fairly well established to find out what this distribution of the dark matter between us and these galaxies are. Mm. Now, if you have populations of galaxies at different distances, you can do something which is called tomography. So basically, you know, you have a population at a larger distance of, of source galaxies and look how their, their shapes are changed, how the light is changed, and you go to the next population and you basically get slices how the structures grow in the universe. It's like looking at MRI scan of, that's of right. somebody's yeah, head. That's you right, know, you get slices exactly, yeah. And that allows you to, to compare with models of structure formation, and they are significantly different, for instance, if you modify gravity or have dark energy. So that is sort of, at the moment, an emerging probe, and there are satellite proposals on both sides of, of, of the Atlantic to look for these signatures. And the reasoning why you might need a satellite is because these signals are so faint, so the atmosphere is very disturbing on the Earth. It's curious to, to note that we're using observations of one unknown component of the universe, namely dark matter, to tell us about another unknown component that is, of the universe. That is definitely a, a, a fair point. Um, but let's say if we stay in the standard lore of dark matter, we know it has to interact gravitationally. So, and that is basic physics. We know how that behaves. And, and that is the main reason dark matter was introduced in the first place. In some, in some sense, we don't actually really care necessarily what the dark matter is actually made of. We know how it interacts with the universe. And that's, that's right. That's mm. correct. So what is the uh, observation platform? What telescope, what instrumentation are we going to use? in space, you mentioned, to uh, make these observations? For these types of inf um, observations, what we need is so-called wide imaging surveys because you, you have to uh, resolve the shapes of these galaxies fairly well in order to tickle out the st statistical st signature of the intervening dark matter distribution. What we also like is to push this to fairly large distances or high redshifts, and hence we need uh, very sensitive in instruments. These satellite observations, they will probably the earliest take place in 10 years. So in the meantime, there are a lot of ground-based instruments which will improve the current picture on that. For example, I'm involved in one thing. It's called the Dark Energy Survey, which is using a, a telescope in, in, in Chile mm -hmm. and does an imaging survey there and also gets the redshifts of the objects. So the Dark Energy Survey, is it just simply one telescope? Is it one group? It's it's a single telescope, yeah. And it's observing from, from Chile now? 
Well, it's um, this telescope is existing, but we are building a new camera to uh, to be put on that. We look forward to it, and it's going to be operational roughly in. 2009-10. So presumably it must be better than the current state-of-the-art for wide-field surveys because we know wide-field surveys do exist, I mean, and people are doing this weak lensing uh, project from a variety of sites. However, it's quite difficult, and I think part of the problem is that you're trying to detect a slight shape change of a galaxy's image, but other things do the, the, do, do the same process, not, not least of all the Earth's atmosphere. That is correct. I mean, that's why I said before uh, there are proposals for satellite missions to get rid of this distortion due to the Earth's atmosphere. But there's all kinds of other problems. Um, the instrument itself, um, how, how the lens in the instrument behaves, you have to understand that fairly well to tickle out the, these signals. There might be also more astrophysical effects. Uh, for instance, if if there's some astrophysics that the shapes of galaxies align on very large scales, you might mistake that for the intervening dark matter acting mm. on, on the galaxy shapes. And there's a lot of work currently going into understanding the systematic problems of these surveys. It's an exciting field of research, though, isn't it, really? Yes. I mean, to... Well, I keep on thinking it's, it's highly embarrassing that we really don't know how the universe is made up <laughs> on, on, on large scales. We have well, dark matter, dark energy. We, we that's really right. We, we don't know 95% of the universe. And that is why some people prefer rather to fiddle around with Einstein equations. And you can, they claim you can get away with 5%, which is in the matter as we know it. Uh, I'm a bit skeptical that you can explain away dark matter, but with dark energy at the moment we know so little we should be completely open-minded also with regard how we design these future surveys. We shouldn't just target them to one possibility. Mm. Let's go back to those two controversial theories. You mentioned one, one was filling with Einstein's equations. The other yeah. one was postulating that we live in a special part of the universe, and that contradicts a fairly strong assumption that everybody wants to maintain, which is we should not consider our own position in the universe as being anything special. That is correct, but um, to some extent that shows you how desperate theorists are getting because this fine-tuning problem I mentioned initially with this 120 orders of magnitude is something they really don't like. So I'm a bit suspicious that you might exchange one fine-tuning problem with another one that you need to live in a special place in the universe. But it's I think at the moment it's certainly valid to that people look into these theories and see what their observational signatures might be. And quite possibly they might be ruled out fairly quickly. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. No problem. I enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Jochen Vela trying to solve one of the biggest questions facing astronomers and cosmologists today. What is dark energy? And of course, this is quite a big battlefield between all of the various uh, or the various people trying to put forward their theories. Yes, indeed, the field is wide open and there have been a number of interesting ideas explaining what could the dark energy be. Some of them are fantastic, some of them are less fantastic, and some of them are even approaching sane. So... <laughs> well, the thing is that, that, that science relies on imagination. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, it's in, in creativity more than it is given credit for. We were, the people who come up with the ideas to try and explain the phenomena that we see have to be creative, they have to be imaginative, and they have to also have the scientific rigor to back up and investigate their uh, hypotheses. One thing I have found is that maths uh, itself requires a lot of imagination when, when you're faced with a problem. 
you you do have to think very much outside the box to be able to get an answer that uh, that will make sense. And and that's one of the beauty uh, the beautiful things about maths is that you do have that uh, that imagination, that imaginative input. And it's certainly one thing I I enjoyed about uh, about physics when I was studying physics. Mm, yes, indeed. You simply cannot be a mathematical computing machine if you want to make advances. You do have to have some degree of uh, imagination on how to solve problems, how to translate real-world problems into the language of mathematics, and then have the ability to solve them. And, and draw on parallels from other disciplines, even from possibly even the arts and, and, uh, and, other, and other such things. You've got the, the four-color problem, which is an artistic problem, but which has been kind of solved by maths and computing. Well, someone who knows all about the science of the sky uh, is, of course, Ian Morrison, and he's here to tell us all about July's night sky. Here he is. Well, July 2008. Well, at least, I suppose, for astronomers, we can say that uh, the nights are getting slightly longer. You haven't got to stay up quite so late uh, to see things in the sky. Uh, it's not perhaps the best month of the year in terms of what we can see, but nevertheless it is worth getting out half past ten to eleven-ish with binoculars or perhaps even a telescope or just your eyes to have a look and see what you can see. At the beginning of July, uh, Leo the Lion is actually setting in the west and we'll come back to Leo a little bit later on. A couple of nice things to see there in the first week of um, July. There's then a rather blank area of sky uh, which is the constellation of Virgo, with only really one bright star called Spica. But in this region, in fact, there are lots of galaxies visible with a telescope. It's called the Realm of the Galaxies, because we're looking towards a giant cluster of galaxies. We call it the Virgo Cluster. And our little group of galaxies, our own Milky Way, the Andromeda Galaxy and M33, are the three largest galaxies of our own group. We're sort of an outrider group, of this so-called Virgo supercluster, with the Virgo cluster at its heart. Low in the sky, for those of us in the north of England, a little better for those in the south, you'll see the constellations of Scorpius and Sagittarius. This is a wonderfully rich part of the sky in terms of things to view, but it's not a bad idea to have a holiday in the south of France to, to see them somewhat higher in the sky. So let me recommend that for, for July or August. Again, above that, a relatively empty part of the sky is the constellation Ophiuchus, which almost no one's heard of. In fact, the sun spends some time in here. It could be one of the, it is one of the constellations of the ecliptic, but uh, not taken up by the astrologers. Uh, I mean, would you want to be called an Ophiuchan? Not particularly nice sounding, is it? So maybe that's why they didn't. Above Ophiuchus is, in fact, the constellation of Hercules, and there are four bright stars at its heart. They make up a shape which is called the keystone, because it looks a little bit like the keystone at the top of a, 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 of a stone arch. If you look from the bottom to the top, right-hand stars of the keystone, as you look at it in the sky, about two-thirds of the way up, particularly with binoculars, you should see a little fuzzy ball, a fuzzy glow. This is, in fact, a wonderful globular cluster. It's called M13, the, the globular cluster in Hercules. And it is one of around a hundred or so spherical globular clusters that surround our own galaxy, probably formed at the time the galaxy was formed, 
and very, very nice in a medium-sized telescope. Over to the west of Hercules is the constellation of Bootes with a very nice bright star, Arcturus, but really not very much else there to see. But as you go to the left of Hercules, you come to perhaps the second most beautiful part of the night sky. I think I'd put Orion and Taurus and Gemini we see them after Christmas first. But second, I'd put, in fact, Cygnus, Lyra, and Aquila. Um, the brightest star in Cygnus, which is Deneb, the brightest star in Ly- Lyra, which is Vega, and the brightest star in Aquila, which is Altair, they form a very prominent triangle in the sky. We call it the Summer Triangle. The nice thing to do is to take some binoculars and work your way up the lower right-hand side of that triangle from Altair up to Vega. And about a third of the way up, you should see a rather nice little asterism. It's called Brocky's Cluster, and it's like an upside-down coat hanger. So it's often called the coat hanger. That's actually quite pretty. And there are lots of very nice objects to view with the telescope in Cygnus, even the smallest telescope. Looking at the head of Cygnus the Swan, a star called Albireo, you will see a lovely double star, one looking rather gold the other rather blue. So there's a fair bit in the sky, and and higher up still, almost overhead, we have a very rich constellation, which is Ursa Major, the Great Bear. The part that we see most prominently we call the plough. If you look with binoculars at the tail of the Great Bear, or the handle of the plough, shall we say, the middle star... In fact, with binoculars, you'll easily see is two stars, Alcor and Mizar. And if, in fact, you look with a pair of binoculars, with a telescope, you'll see that one of these is itself a double. It's a very nice little thing to look at with a small telescope. So that's the sky. And obviously, as the month goes by, it gets a little bit darker a little bit earlier, which is a help. What about the planets? Well, I'm going to come to um, Saturn and Mars a little bit later on because we can see them virtually for the last time for a few months uh, at the very early part of July, and they're close to the constellation of Leo. But just let me summarise some of the other ones first. Um, Mercury actually gets to what is called greatest elongation. It's when the angle it subtends to the sun is largest on July the 1st. And you can see it in the east-northeast about 45 minutes before dawn. And you'll be able to see it perhaps for the first two weeks of July. It gets to magnitude minus one. It's to the lowest, to the lower left of Aldebaran in Taurus. And one way of distinguishing a star from a planet is a planet will not be seen to twinkle as much. It will appear steadier in your binoculars than a star will. So a little chance to see Mercury at the beginning of the month. Um, Venus is in fact, or was at the extreme far side of the sun on June the 9th, so it wasn't visible at all during June. Um, we'll see it just above the western horizon after sunset, you know, about the last week in July, but to be honest, it'll be very low down and hard to see. Uh, best to wait a, a few weeks beyond that. Well, the two planets, three planets that we can easily see this month are Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter. Let's start with Mars and Saturn. Now, they are very close to the star Regulus. In fact, at the beginning of the month, it's just about 
Saturn's about 4.5 degrees, a little bit up and to the left, shining at magnitude 0.7. Now, on the 5th of June, which is a nice night to have a look, if you've got a good low western horizon, is up and to the left of a thin crescent moon. And between the moon and Saturn, you'll also see Mars. So on July the 5th, very nice evening skyscape, the moon, Mars and Saturn, pretty much in a straight line, with Regulus, in fact, popping up between Mars and the moon. So you've got moon, Regulus, Mars and Saturn. Now, Mars is moving towards the position of Saturn in the sky, and on July the 10th, they're in conjunction. They're just about three-quarters of a degree apart, up to the left of Regulus. By this time, the moon has moved further around. Now, it won't be easy to see because there'll still be a fair bit of glare in the night sky, but I think with a pair of binoculars, it might be well worth looking out for. Well, the only planet I haven't mentioned yet is, of course, Jupiter. Um, This is probably the best month to see it this year. Um, It rises in the southeast just after sunset at the beginning of July, and in fact, by the end of the month, it's going to be well up in the south-southeast at about nightfall. It actually is at opposition on July the 9th, which means the Sun, the Earth, and Jupiter in a straight line. Jupiter is opposite the Sun. And that implies it's going to be due south at midnight universal time. So you'll basically see it in the south around midnight. Now, the trouble at the moment is that Jupiter is at the lowest declination, the lowest level in the ecliptic. So it only reaches about 15 degrees above the southern horizon, and that means the atmosphere doesn't help us see it clearly. Um, It has a quite bright magnitude minus 2.7 and a lovely angular diameter of 47 arc seconds or so. Even a small telescope, however, will show you the four Galilean moons of Jupiter as they weave their way around it. And a telescope should show you some of the equatorial bands and maybe even the great red spot on the surface. Uh, The images won't be as good as they often are, partly because the atmosphere uh, refracts the light and disperses it so that you get several different coloured images sort of separated. If you have a telescope, and you may have what is called a narrowband filter, like an auction 3 filter, it will reduce the brightness, but you'll be seeing it in just one wavelength of light, and that will eliminate some of the effects, and you may well see a clearer image. So I think that rounds up July. Um, Best of luck. I hope you do see some nice things in the sky, and uh, as we go through the rest of the year, the nights get longer, and perhaps we have more to see. Okay, well, that, I'm afraid, brings the July issue of the Jodcast to an end. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening, for downloading us. Do tell everybody about the Jodcast. We would love to have more listeners listening to us. If you have enjoyed the Jodcast, please do give us your feedback. Send us feedback via the website www.jodcast.net or send us a postcard or send us a letter. Any way you want to, send us your feedback. We love receiving it. And please do send it into the BBC as well so that we can get snapped up to entertain the masses. Absolutely. Thanks go to Jochen Vella 
for his input on Dark Energy and also for Roy Smith's for editing that particular interview. Thank you very much. The intro voices were Nigel Banyard, Alexa Chipman and Dave McIver uh, giving us those screams of terror. So that's all from us for this episode of the Jodcast. Thanks very much again for listening and we'll talk to you again next time. Until then, Jod on. Bye everyone. Planet Mars. Oh, wonderful night out tonight. Bit chilly. What's that? Whoa! Ah! Well, these trousers were clean on today. That's the last time I do a Christmas special. Of course, no attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright relating to Doctor Who, which remains the property of the BBC.